Hey, welcome, welcome, everybody. It is the Friday edition of Talk Back, and of course, this is another 90-minute show, so we're thrilled to have you along this morning. 721-1290 is our number, and uh, Talk Back is brought to you this morning by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Well, you can come by, and for all of your New York favorites, they have locks, they have New York cheesecake, cannolis, fabulous bagel sandwiches at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery on North Reserve. Also brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, where they offer residential and commercial cleaning, and no job is too big or too small. So whatever the job, give them a call today for a free estimate at 406-260-6617. Okay, here we are, and uh, we are thrilled to have with us once again our friend Patrick Barkey, Dr. Patrick Barkey, the University of Montana Bureau of Business and Economic Research. Welcome, sir. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you. Uh, you and I were visiting just a little bit uh, before the show, and I, I spoke about how the, the you and uh, your compatriot there, uh, Bryce, Bryce Bryce Ward, uh, appeared at City Club, right? And I was I, I was earnestly there with my my recorder running at home, but the the audio uh, just in that room, the audio was so bad there was just nothing I could glean. So that's why I'm glad you're here today. Well, you'll have to get it from the horse's mouth here, <laughs> won't you? Well, the horse is here, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I know one of the things that you really, when you come to these uh, events, I know that there's usually an economic seminar coming up, and I wanted to be faithful to you uh, and say, let's let's talk about the things that are really important to you. This seminar is is a big one. What's What's going on? Well, we're at a turning point in the economy, and uh, there's a lot of question marks out there. For, particularly for people who are running businesses across Montana. There's a lot of uh, uh, good news in the rearview mirror and a lot of uncertainty uh, ahead of us. Uh, and there's some things that uh, Montanans need to know. Uh, for example, um, when you take inflation into account, <laughs> what looked like a good money wage year for Montana workers ended up being one of the weakest years on record uh, because in terms of spending power, making more money, but having prices go up even faster is is how to go in reverse. So uh, I think that's a that's a story worth telling. I think there's also uh, plenty of stories about why Montana's tax revenues were I emphasize were so strong in the last couple fiscal years, and what's likely to happen in the future for that because it's been a, a real roller coaster for the economy. Uh, it's a it's a down up if you will, a very sharp down in the pandemic very sharp up in the recovery. And uh, it's natural to think that what happened last year is going to continue this year, but I think that's a that's a very doubtful proposition as we start 2023. So tell me a little bit about, about the, what you're going to speak about at the seminar. When is it going to be, where, and who's coming? Well, we've had outstanding signups for our seminar. So who's coming is really a cross-section of uh, decision makers across the state. In many communities, including Missoula, it has turned into a real... Um, a gathering, if you will, uh, a signpost for the start the year off with with this outlook discussion that's so relevant for so many different organizations and households. Uh, where we'll be is uh, we'll start in seven cities across the state, across the boot, as Brian Schweitzer used to like to say. So we start in Great Falls on January 24th. The next day, the 25th, we're in Helena. And then on the Friday of that week, we're in Missoula. And then the next week, which starts off January 31st, that's Tuesday, we're in Billings, followed by Bozeman, followed by Butte, and three consecutive days. And then the next week takes us to February 7th in Kalispell. So in each of those programs, we bring two things uh, to the table. The first is the, uh, I would say, our usual assessment 
of the state economy, and I emphasize the state economy because that's really our uh, comparative advantage. We talk about Montana. We talk about Montana communities. We talk about housing markets in Montana. We talk about specific performance of Montana economies, including Missoula, including all the companies I mentioned. And each year we also address a theme. And you mentioned Bryce Ward. Bryce Ward is our um, used to work for us as our associate director, and now he's founded his own consulting company. And he's really well positioned to talk about the theme of uh, what we call the new Montana, the future of Montana, looking at the really remarkable changes that have occurred in the state just in the last couple of years where so many people have moved to the state and not only numbers, but in terms of who, what kind of people they are. And uh, the question that poses for uh, many Montana uh, regions where those people are arriving, uh, what's what's the, uh, as, as Bryce likes to put it, the demand for Montana has increased and how will Montanans adjust and react? I, I will I will say that today is Montana Economic Minute uh, that that you prepared was talking about uh, people using their own homes for VRBOs and automatically for some reason becoming pariahs to their neighbors. If you could maybe kind of uh, we have a couple minutes before our first break here, so just kind of take people through that idea that people aren't really allowed to do whatever they want with their own homes, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the issue underlying all this, of course, no one would care if housing prices weren't really galloping out of control along with rents. And so since that's the case, we're, we're looking for solutions. And in some cases, we're looking for scapegoats. And the point of my minute broadcast was simply to say that this is demand for space. This is, this is demand for housing from a source other than residents. And as such... It is not going to go away by outlawing it. I mean, it exists. And so how we accommodate it is a, is a, uh, is a policy question, just like how do we, how do we, how do we uh, address the demand for space on the part of residents and, and workers and so forth. So that's part of it. And the other part is what you mentioned already, which is more that, that sort of freedom aspect to it, right? I mean, in other words. My house. Right. When someone tells you what to do with your money, it's, it's you know. If you accept that, then I suppose you're allowed to turn around and then say what they should do with theirs. So uh, that's that's more of a philosophical issue, but I don't think it it leads us to a good economic outcome uh, to simply uh, go after VRBOs as as if they were a problem uh, in housing markets that are severely underbuilt. I will tell you, I I have uh, my wife has some friends who are, are traveling nurses, and uh, they. I have a home in, I believe it's up in Columbia Falls, and so they have been uh, VRBOing their house on on a daily basis. And not only that, you combine that income with the income that she's getting as a traveling nurse, uh, which is hundreds of dollars a day. Uh, they're they're basically uh, very wealthy nomads right now and really enjoying what's going on. They've been able to take advantage of what's going on in the economy to, to benefit their own family. Well, of course, I'm an economist. I got to be a killjoy here go, and say, "Go for it! <laughs> uh, don't forget inflation, Peter." <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what. All those we'll, dollar numbers are better. We'll, we'll we'll talk about inflation when we come back. By the way, the phone lines are open. If you have a question for Doctor Barkey, uh, the lines are open at seven two one twelve ninety. We would love to hear from you. And so we're going to come right back uh, with more talk back right after this. 
Okay, we are back. 721-1290 is our number. This is Talk Back, and I'm Peter Christian, by the way. Nick Christensen is over there taking your phone calls, already pretty busy. Joining us here in the studio is Dr. Patrick Markey, Director of University of Montana's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. And we already have a caller on the line. I believe this is Skip. Skip, good morning. You're on with Dr. Barkey. Go ahead, please. Good morning, Peter. And good morning, Dr. Barkey. I I was going to ask about what everybody's been hearing in the news or pieces of it the last few days having to do with um, another um, an, another thing of, uh, I guess, our government running out of money. And so, therefore, some big decisions have to be made. And uh, for the, the debt limit, I think it's called. So, sir, w- what happens uh, if, if all of a sudden it... It's, it stops. Is there anything until some decision is made? Is there anything that affects like Social Security or um, or some entitlement programs or things that people need to be aware of uh, so they don't get surprised? Can Social Security be affected by something like that? And by the way, when is Social Security going to run out? Do you have a formula for that, sir? Thank you for trying to answer those. All right, there you go. So there, there, there's a pretty big subject there, Patrick. Yeah, well, uh, and it's a serious question, and I, I, I mean to take it seriously, but I'm going to give you a, a slightly unserious answer to start out with, and that is um, if you would click your recorder on as I answer your question and just take the tape and when I'm done and store it, you can probably pull it out in two years and pull the same thing out. I know I certainly could have a couple years ago. We've been going through some form of this now uh, off and on for for over a decade at least. It's a unique feature of the way uh, Congress works. It's politically useful. It's kind of – Congress has already voted to spend the money. Uh, You know, we have a democratic system. Uh, Congress voted. Laws were passed. Money is is being uh, uh, committed. Uh, Taxes are being collected, et cetera. Uh, so now we have a second redundant vote uh, that says, oh, by the way, given that we've already approved all this spending and all these taxes and we know the, the, the net is a negative, so we're running a deficit, now we have to vote again to do the deficit. And, of course, uh, it's political theater, uh, but it has serious consequences. You're correct. Uh, you know, it's, it's a serious deal. Uh, government running out of money. Well, in a sense, we're running deficits. We're always running out of money. We've been running out of money every year. Uh, since the 1970s, with the exception of a year and a half when Clinton was in was in the White House, where we ran a small surplus. But uh, so is all spending is at risk, uh, and, and so what any uh, uh, rational organization does when it runs out of money is it pays the bills it has to pay, and the bills that the government has to have to pay are interestingly enough not Social Security, Medicare, military spending, etc. But they have to make the payments on their debt. If they don't make those payments, they default. Uh, of course, uh, the government is not completely rational, and uh, it's political. So uh, politically, uh, people who own bonds are not very important. Uh, people like you who are depend on money for Social Security to make ends meet are hugely politically important. And so the risk is that the government, uh, A, will not stop Social Security, but the risk is that they'll, they'll, they'll stop making payments on the debt, which would be a gigantic disaster. It would permanently raise the cost of borrowing. It would add billions to spending immediately that would not go away. 
it would be a huge blight on a reputation, which is already pretty seriously uh, uh, been impinged. So that's that's a long answer. Uh, the real answer is no one knows what will happen. It's political theater. At the end, the limit will be raised because it has to be raised. But what we go through to get there is anyone's guess. And let me ask you this. Uh, speaking of uh, the curtain, what happens when the curtain actually comes down on on this economy? And and when we are, oh, what, 30-some trillion dollars in debt, uh, the, the payments on the debt – uh, are, are now enormous. Uh, and, and, of course, the interest on those payments is what we're talking about, right? Yeah, it's the interest we're paying on the debt. We're not paying down the principal very much. Right. We're typically just rolling it over. Correct. So, so it, it, is there if, – if things, if things continue as they are right now, uh, Patrick, how, how long before uh, America throws up its hands and says, hey, we can't do anything else? Uh, it's not America that throws up its hands – it's the people loaning us the money that throw up their hands that say we're not going to give you any more, at least on these friendly terms. Uh, that hasn't happened. So uh, it can clearly go on a while longer. I don't really know. I don't think anyone knows. There's been some interesting calculations done on that. Um, one thing I do know, and that is when we lose the confidence of investors, it will, be, it will happen suddenly. It will not be gradual. It will not be oh, this is starting to turn around. Maybe we start worrying. It'll, it'll be a sudden event. And uh, that's the way these uh, financial confidence kind of things always work. Uh, will it be tomorrow? Probably not. Will it be next year? Probably not. But if we continue to simply spend money with no limit, uh, with no effective control of uh, our spending, um, you know, it's, it's, it's in the future, no question about it. So now, uh, can we use the analogy of a balloon? Uh, just <laughs> you keep pumping air into it. Eventually, it's got to pop. I mean, there there is simply no way for it not to. Or 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 is that a bad analogy? Yeah, that's not really a good analogy because there's a lot of. Uh, listen, there, there's been a lot of. Uh, I wouldn't say hot air. I'm tempted to say that <laughs> because you said balloon, not hot air. There's been a lot of very intelligent discussion. Yeah, that's my that's my, my department. <laughs> and there, there's a couple observations to make. Okay. The one is that unlike uh, you and I that have debt, and we've made this point many times on the program, unlike you and I that have debt, uh, there's there's nobody else to turn to. In other words, if the U.S. doesn't pay your debt, you don't take the U.S. to court and force them to do it. Uh, that's You can't do that, you know. Uh, the courts are, belong by the US, uh, are owned by the U.S. So uh, there's a couple things that, that are also different. Uh, one is that the, the backstop is the economy itself. So the productive economy can be taxed, and those taxes can can make the payments. When those payments get large, you can tax more. I, I realize there's, there's practical limits to that. Finally, the, the, the big thing out there is inflation. So debt is dom- denominated in dollars. Uh, policy, uh, government policy has the ability to make those dollars cheaper and effectively reduce the cost of debt. So those are things that you and I can't do with our debt. Government can and uh, so it's always going to be very different. Well, speaking of inflation, uh, just, you know, on, on a very, very extremely local level, I drive past the local gas station uh, the other day uh, where, where the price of gas was two ninety nine for un- regular unleaded. Now it's three fourteen a gallon. So it, it went up a bunch, basically, in the space of a day. Oh, that's just noise. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, that's that's that's. Uh, I don't think any Montanan is shocked by that. Okay. 
Uh, well, we were kind of hoping to stay under three bucks for a while, but uh, yeah. Well, three bucks isn't three bucks anymore. That's, so that's uh, true. It's, that's it's true. all it's all different, you yeah. know. Yeah, we're we're up against a break, and we have a question called "What is an RDO?" If you could answer that when we come back, seven two one twelve ninety is our number. Our guest is Dr. Patrick Barkey, director of the University of Montana's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. We're coming back. Hey, we're back on Talk Back. Dr. Patrick Barkey joining us here in the studio, UM's uh, Bureau of Business and Economic Research. Dave, thanks for holding. You're on. Yes, good morning. Uh, about the debt, first of all, I find it interesting, the party out of power. I mean, when Donald Trump was president, uh, they voted the debt ceil- raise the debt ceiling three times. But uh, I would like to talk about taxes and do they influence people where they live. And, you know, Montana, from what I understand, gets more money from the federal government than they send in. But states like New York and I believe California send more money in than they get back. So they have, they raise their state taxes to compensate for that. And I believe that Congress, in their wisdom, passed laws saying that state taxes were no longer deductible, or at least part of them weren't. And so forcing states like New York to have, be, have double taxation and, and, in effect, pushing people out of the state and to places like Montana. So I'm just curious if taxation has an impact on where people live. Well, that's tax migration, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and the laws that, the, that Congress passed actually incentivize people to leave the high taxes state. And if they hadn't done that, maybe the people would have stayed in their states. Okay, Dave, thanks for the call. Go ahead. Yep. Well, thanks, Dave. I, I think I would turn what you said uh, a little bit backwards. In other words, I agree with your conclusion. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, the taxes influence where people live, uh, particularly as people uh, get to a stage in their careers where they have more mobility, uh, particularly when they're retired or if they're running their own business and it's, it's possible to relocate that business, I guess the, the poster child for that would be Elon Musk taking Tesla down to Texas. Uh, however, I don't agree with your story of how we got there. In other words, I think uh, some of the things you said in terms of the rate of return, if you will, to federal spending is not necessarily to governments themselves. So in other words, when people look at a state like Montana and say you get more back from the federal government than you pay in, that's not a statement about state government in Montana. That's a statement about Montana itself. We're a border state. We have a forest service. We have a gigantic amount of publicly owned land. We have a huge international border. We have a large number of military uh, um, uh, retirees in our state. There's lots of reasons why we collectively, not we government, but we collectively get more money back. Uh, states which don't have a coastline, et cetera. So there's lots of differences there. So I don't think it's federal policy that has in any way forced states to have tax regimes that are different. I think it's more the simple the political process in those states that has said, we prefer an outcome with higher taxes and higher service levels uh, than you do in Nevada or in Arizona or in Texas or something like that. So I don't agree how you got there, but boy, I certainly agree with your conclusion. Uh, the taxes matter, and we're seeing that big time uh, in the last couple of years. Well, I know that Florida and uh, places like like Florida are deliberately, you know, lowering their tax rate to in to to lure and not lure, but invite people to come and relocate there, especially with their businesses. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if they have a lot of freedom to lower their tax rates. It's it's no easier to change taxes in Florida than it is in Montana. Right. I mean, it's it's a it's a massively messy political football <laughs> that gets kicked around in sure. legislatures and all that sort of thing. Uh, but certainly the fact that you have uh, an East Coast community. I mean, you have, you have, for example, one of the largest Jewish communities in the nation is now in Miami. So uh, it, it's, it's something that is, people have moved. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that have happened. Uh, and let's face it, the weather's a little different too. So, uh, you know, there's lots of factors involved. But taxes are part of it. But services are part of it as well. I, I think that's the reason why people move around within Montana. A lot of people move into cities as they get older because they want the services. They want the mass transit. They want the better access to health care. They're moving in from the uh, from the homestead mm-hmm. into the city, et cetera. So lots of reasons why people move, but taxes are certainly on the list. And we are up against our hard break here. I want to say thank you to Dr. Patrick Barkey joining us this morning. He'll be here for another hour from 9 to 10. And the phones are starting to light up a little bit. We would love to have you get on hold, and we will be more than happy to... Uh, to uh, uh, give you that opportunity. We're going to get to Charles after the top of the hour break. Again, the telephone number is 721-1290, or we don't talk about this enough, use the KGVO app because the message us button on the app there, on that free app, uh, will we'll get uh, our question right to Patrick Barkey. So stay with us. We're coming back right after this timeout for the top of the hour news. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Glad to have you along on the Friday edition, hour number two of uh, Talk Back This Morning, brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. Hey, you got some cleaning that needs to be done in your house or your business. All you have to do is call 406-260-6617. No job is too big or small for Phillips Janitorial. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, authentic New York bagels and pastries, all the way from Little Italy. The only place you can find them right here is in Missoula at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, located on North Reserve. Okay, we are back. I, Peter Christian, Nick Christensen, right over there. Good morning. And uh, joining us on the phone right now, as is her custom, our uh, county attorney, Kirsten Paps. Good morning, Kirsten. How are you? I'm well. Good morning. Good uh, Good to have you along, ma'am. So uh, what is, uh, I, uh, there, there's a, a huge decision yesterday in in uh, in Missoula District Court. I know you probably want to start with that. So please go ahead. Yes. So uh, a Missoula jury convicted Charles Covey of deliberate homicide for um, killing uh, uh, with a blunt instrument um, one of our homeless transients who was bound to a wheelchair. The jury deliberated for two to three hours and um, came back with a guilty verdict. I just have to give a huge shout out to my team, especially the leader of this team who was my lead um, attorney, Mac Bloom, and his co-counsel, Caitlin Creighton. They did an amazing job. It was truly an all-hands-on-deck project. Um, everybody in the office took part in some way to support um, this effort. As you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and some months and sometimes even a year of preparation goes into um, putting on a jury trial. So um, we take them very seriously and we um, use resources that we need. I'm just really proud of how everybody came together to make this happen. You know, it's interesting. Most folks don't really realize, Kirsten, how much and how long it one, one of the reasons why it takes so long uh because this this crime you know occurred back in the year what 2020 
And so uh, here it is, 2023, and uh, the the trial went on, and uh, and now there now that the verdict has been in, there's going to be another few months delay for the for the sentencing. So people don't realize the the the, the emphasis on rights here has has a lot to do with why this takes so long. Is that right? Right. But, that you know, it's important. We care about people's constitutional rights and um, because that's what protects all of us. And so we dot every I, we cross every T to the best of our ability. You know, they I heard one time that somebody said it takes three days of preparation for every day that you see in trial. But I would argue that I would say it's many, many more than three. And it's getting more complex as technology ability increases and as our discovery increases. Each case has tens of thousands of pages of discovery that the attorneys um, and our support staff need to go through meticulously. All right. So how about the rest of the rest of the the week? What, What happened? We charged um, 14 new criminal complaints this week, which is about in our average range. Four of those fall into violent crimes or crimes against person category. In one, the defendant was charged with intimidation after making false bomb threat. We charged in the endangerment category three new cases. Two people were charged with endangering the welfare of a child for allegedly leaving drugs including meth and uh, fentanyl and paraphernalia within reach of a toddler and exposing the child to methamphetamine chemicals, allegedly. Um, in the property crimes category, we charged five new cases. One of the burglaries involved allegedly breaking into a dispensary. Um, one of the theft cases involved the allegation that the defendant stole a RV from one of our local dealerships. We charged one new drug case involving methamphetamine, and then finally, um, a fugitive from justice. All right. So, all in all, very busy week. Kirsten, it's always a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you, and thanks for all the hard work you folks do. Thank you. Have a safe weekend. And the same to you, ma'am. Thank you. All right, we're, we're going to take a break. Come right back. Uh, Charles has been waiting very patiently to talk with, with Dr. Patrick Barkey, so we'll do that right after we get back from our break. By the way, the phone lines are open. If you have a question or comment you'd like to share with uh, Patrick Barkey, Director of the University of Montana Bureau of Business and Economic Research, those phone lines are open right now. Or you can use the KGVO app and message uh, your comment or question as well. So we'll be right back. Hey, we're back on Talkback, and uh, we want to say thank you to uh, Kirsten Pabst for joining us right now and, and for your patience, while, and of course, uh, the, the, our patience for Patrick Barkey, who uh, took a little break there. But we have folks waiting to visit with Patrick right now. Uh, Charles has been waiting the longest. Hey, Charles, good morning. Thanks for holding. Go ahead, sir. Well, good morning. Thank you, Dr. Barkey, for uh, being on the show. Um, I have a question. Quite often I find myself in discussions on uh, pros and cons of socialized health medicine in the United States, either with other people or even with myself, and the cost to the taxpayers if they were to implement something like that. But on the other side of the equation, I've never been able to find any statistic that says what the total health care premiums that are presently being paid by American citizen. Um, any idea on that? Thanks. Uh, good question. Well, first off, I'm glad we're talking about health care because I, I, I heard for years people are, quote, tired of talking about health care. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge issue, so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, my first uh, response would be that we already have socialized <laughs> medicine uh, in many sectors. Uh, 
the VA, uh, the Medicare, to some extent Medicaid, et cetera. And we have, of course, now we have uh, the Affordable Care Plan and all that sort of thing. So we, we're, we're getting closer to it. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to describe any system of healthcare finance with a, with a simple phrase like socialized medicine. What we have here is something where private uh, healthcare providers uh, provide the services and then they simply give the bill to the government or to individuals through their insurance companies to pay. That is a little unique in the American model. A lot of other models have, uh, have situations where the government is, does everything, uh, so-called single-payer systems where the government decides what you need and pays for it. And so you don't have that sort of blank check aspect to it. Um, I'm not commenting on any, whether anything is good or bad. So to your question of how much are people paying in premiums, I think there's some uh, there's some good sources for that. There's a uh, there's a site called Kaiser Health K A I S E R. Uh, if you Google that, there's a lot of health statistics on there, broken out by states, and I think you'll find the number you're looking for if you look. Uh, I don't remember the exact website, so you have to start with Google to find it. But I think uh, Kaiser Health Facts or something like that, it'll show up, and uh, I think it's a wealth of information. Uh, for that. Uh, by the way, one last comment because we could talk about healthcare for the rest of the day. <laughs> uh, one of the new developments in healthcare, of course, right now has been the uh, almost complete collapse of the British system, the National Health Service there. Uh, the queues there have gotten so long uh, that there is talk of starting up a parallel privately funded health insurance system that would, of course, uh, be geared to those who could pay for it, as all private systems are. Uh, simply because the public system, which has been sort of the third rail of politics uh, over there for a long time, you're not allowed to criticize it, and yet it is such is in such disarray uh, with the COVID pressures and uh, the cues for all kinds of uh, health needs uh, have have really made that system uh, really starting to really uh, implode. Does that help you, Charles? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for the call. By the way, just as as a quick aside, my daughter Jenna was a traveling nurse in Great Britain at St. Thomas Hospital for two years. And the the tales she would tell about, uh, you know, people just sitting in the hallways, waiting in lines uh, all day, the the office would open and close and they wouldn't get through the the queues. Uh, And she said it was it was on a daily basis. It was just something they, they expected every day. So. Well, it, it, it's not perfect here either. I mean, we have massive issues in healthcare here, uh, but it's different. Uh, it, it's, that model has been held up as, as sort of like where, where the U.S. has to go, and uh, it's not really clear that that's a good, good, good target. Okay, let's get uh, Susan. She's been waiting the longest. Hi, Susan. Go ahead. Um, hey there. So um, with the national debt, it's in such high numbers. And the world dependence on the American dollar. Um, can you please comment on how tenuous the world is economically? Because the uh, the U.S. debt is so high, and what is that impact going to be? And we are on a. And a second question is how close. Is China to taking over as the world monetary basis 
for the world, which would collapse the dollar. Sure, I can uh, make an effort at that. Thanks, Susan. Sorry. Um, first off, the uh, it's not just the U.S. Debt. debt in a lot of countries is high. It's, it's higher than higher in Europe. It's high in Japan. It's high in the U.S. In dollar terms, of course, it's huge. Uh, but everything's huge. Uh, the economy is huge, et cetera. But there's no question. I mean, there's. I'm not denying your question a bit. I mean, uh, relative to all those things, our debt is very high. Um, what does that mean for the uh, strength of the dollar? Um, I I think the uh, you know the the question when it comes to uh, the dollar's uh, continuation as a world reserve currency is always compared to what. So, uh, um, like I say, the uh, the other developed uh, economies. Are are not exactly in better debt shape than we are. Uh, even Germany runs deficits now, and and the euro would uh, you know would never make it as a reserve currency. There's that 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 the whole future of that currency is always in doubt because of the enormous internal pressures between the different countries, like Italy on one hand and, and Germany don't, on the don't other. Don't forget Greece, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. So uh, so that's always a question compared to what in terms of the uh, the viability of the Chinese currency. Um, you know, maybe maybe five years ago, uh, that would have been a more serious consideration. But right now, we see uh, an activist Chinese military. We see an, a, a very predatory uh, behavior by the Chinese. The oh, the fact that none of their economic statistics have any any uh, transparency whatsoever. Uh, I, I I just can't see that being anywhere close to being replaced with a dollar, I think more likely is something uh, along the lines of a digital currency, which uh, I certainly am not very expert at. But, uh, you know, the dollar the dollar won't reign forever, but I don't think the Chinese yuan is going to be uh, is, is, is a viable replacement right now. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, obviously, you're, you're an economist, so you, you look forward. What would the world look like? I, I, and I know this is a tough question. What would the world look like if if the dollar eventually was no longer the 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 world currency? Well, it's not the world currency. It's a, it's, a, it's a medium of exchange. Yes, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. So uh, the, the, I, I don't the know. Fiat, I mean, the fiat currency. The, the only thing uh, the only thing that would be different is that the uh, the U.S. would have a, a lot less leverage in terms of pursuing its own independent policies. Uh, it would have to be concerned about uh, always repricing things according to whatever the currency was that was the medium of international exchange. So it's it's a certain policy freedom. And, um, you know, to talk about a collapse of the dollar is not accurate. I mean, the, the British pound used to be the uh, reserve currency. It didn't collapse. Their economy didn't collapse. Right. They, they became a different position in the pecking order, if you will, in terms of being able to implement – policies that affected everyone else, now they're more receivers of those policies and having to uh, debate. But, you know, investors ultimately determine the strength of all these currencies. It's not going to be uh, any kind of uh, overnight thing either. So I, I think uh, the days of the dollar are, are reasonably good. It's kind of funny to ask that question right now, too, because although it's over now, up till about six months ago, the dollar was incredibly strong. Right. I mean, in fact, it was it was just... It, it was making fools of forecasters who all said it was going to get weaker, and it never did. Now it finally has retreated quite a bit. But uh, 
the strength of the dollar uh, is is hard to predict. When, when, when you say, that for, for those of us who are not economists and don't understand the terminology, what do you mean the strength of the dollar as opposed to the strength of, 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 of any other currency? How, how is it, that determined? It's all relative to others, and it's all determined in the marketplace. So if you're traveling to Europe and you want some euros, you go and get some euros, or more likely, you take your credit card with you and you charge and it's charged in euros, but transfers into your account. So what's the what's the exchange rate between euros and dollars? That's the strength of the dollar. So if the uh, if the dollar can um, if it takes uh, you know a uh, dollar thirty two to buy one euro versus a dollar to buy a euro, uh, clearly the latter situation is a stronger dollar. Your dollars are buying more euros. So that's a stronger currency. It's relative to other currencies is what it comes down to. And it, it comes into play when you do that exchange. When you have a global economy where, I mean, the obvious case is where you're traveling, there you see it personally, but more more what you see is what's coming in, what's on the store shelf. So a strong dollar makes uh, imports cheaper and it makes things you buy from abroad cheaper. Okay, and with that, we're up against a break. We have all of our phone lines open. If you have a question for Dr. Patrick Barkey, right now is the time to jump on in because you'll be first in line. Uh, the number is 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. Or, as we mentioned before, you can use the KGVO app and uh, simply message us. We'll be more than happy to pass that along to Dr. Patrick Barkey. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. This is Talk Back for this Friday, and I'm Peter Christian, and Nick Christensen over there. Joining us in the studio, Dr. Patrick Barkey, Director of U of M's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. We have an app question, Nick. Yeah, Mark said, can you address the U.S. deficit and whether it's a good idea to force a default to reduce spending? Whoa. Well, for, first off, the, the deficit is, uh, you're talking about the debt. That's just a matter of language. Right. The debt is the accumulation with interest and so forth of all the deficits we've run up till now, uh, that would be a gigantically bad idea. Uh, I can't think of a a more destructive way to address spending than to uh, default on a debt, uh, particularly the size we have. Uh, we're not a third world country, and we're not treated like a third world country in 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 markets for debt. But the the instant that we put the debt into play. As, as in we are no longer going to honor our promises to make the payments and, and return the money that we said we would when we sold the bonds, et cetera. Uh, if we were to do that, we would poison the entire future of, of borrowing. And in doing so, uh, to resume borrowing, at best, we would pay more. So, uh, no, that's not the way to do it. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, there's, there's supposed to be something called Congress – and there's supposed to be something called appropriation bills, and there's supposed to be something called policy and votes and so forth. That's the way to go about it. All right, let's get right back to the phones and say hello to Larry. Larry, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, in the last legislative session, the uh, legislature voted down a bill uh, put up by the uh, proponents of the movie industry to give them a tax break. And uh, I think the bill was going to increase the limit of those tax breaks. And uh, I just uh, read an article that uh, mentioned you folks, and you were uh, citing the positive impacts of Yellowstone on the Montana economy and creating jobs. And uh, 
I just wonder if uh, a report like that will um, go to the legislature and say, wow, if we give them raise that uh, tax break limit, uh, we'll attract more movie uh, producers here. Or do you think uh, the legislature will say, yeah, we're reaping in all the money with the uh, tax laws we've got on the books now, so let's not change them. I'd just like your thoughts on that. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Well, thanks for that question. Um, first off, we already have a, there is a, it's not, it's a tax credit, which is a, there's a Montana film tax credit. I don't recall. It has a certain ceiling to it. It's, it's been in existence for a couple of years. So uh, I have no opinion on, uh, no official opinion on whether that's unless, a good or Unless they hire for an extra on Yellowstone, maybe. <laughs> I know you've, got, they, you've got the mustache. I, I know it. what they pay. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Now I, I, uh, I, I'm on t- I'm on TV too much already. I guess that's what I would say. Um, to your point, though, we we've actually done two studies about Yellowstone specifically. Um, the first was what the spending on the production did to the economy, and the second one, which just came out uh, yesterday, I think, uh, was a study that extended the original study to include the impact of tourism. So uh, I'd love to talk about that study. Uh, your question was how the legislature was going to use it. I have no idea. Uh, but it, the the research, which I can talk about, is uh, one that was, was pretty astounding, quite frankly, because uh, what we found is that a fairly large fraction of people who visited Montana said that viewing the show mattered a great deal to their decision to visit. So... I think a lot of Montanans know this. Uh, this was a way of quantifying that, uh, and uh, you know the way we the way we figured it, which is all written up in our paper and it's on our webpage. Um, really looked at that and what that what that spending of that Yellowstone induced tourism surge uh, meant for the economy, and it was it was very significant. So that's what I know about. I know about the research in terms of whether uh, the policy is good or what the legislature will do. You know. They'll make up their own mind, and I'm sure they're they're not listening right now either. And, <laughs> well, they're a little busy. Yeah, they're a little busy. That's yeah. right. All right, let's uh, let's see. Yeah, we have time to take one more call here before a break. Uh, I think Jeff is up next. Hey, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Um, as I understand it, uh, medical insurance came into uh, being during the Second World War when there were uh, limits or restrictions on actually giving employees uh, pay raises. And so they gave them uh, health insurance, uh, offered to pay part of their health benefits. And uh, I can remember, I was born in the early 50s, and I can remember my mom telling a story of how she went to the doctor. The first question he asked was, do you have insurance or are you going to pay for this yourself? And when she said, we don't have insurance, she said, okay, that means the cost will be half of what it would be normally. And in the ensuing 70 years, um, it's just gotten worse. So my question for you is, do you know how much uh, health insurance, is there any uh, information out there on how much the actual uh, insurance and the administrative costs around insurance have influenced the cost of health care and the benefits of reducing that administrative cost and how best to do that? 
Tell you what, I'm going to ask you to hang on. You want to hang on to the phone, or do you, is that your question? Sure. Okay, we will uh, we'll come right back. After this quick timeout, uh, Patrick will answer that after the break. And we have several lines open. We still have Harry and Dave, but we'll come right back with Jeff's question right after this. Okay, we are back. Uh, Jeff's still on the phone, so let's go ahead and answer his question, if you would, Patrick. Yeah, the question was talking about health insurance and reimbursements and what the impact of uh, health insurance has been on the cost of services and so forth. So I'm going to uh, scratch the skin on, on, on that question because that is a there are many different ways you can go with that. The first way you can go is to talk about the differences that different individuals pay for the same service uh, according to what their insurance status is. Uh, and Medicare is to in play there as well. Medicare has reimbursement rates. Private insurance has reimbursement rates. There's charges that hospitals make. Hospitals are now required by law to disclose their costs for a variety of services, and they are gradually starting to comply with that. It is a incredible, incredibly complicated thing. I, I did a minute on this once, and I think in the U.S. economy, there were something like 30 billion different prices out there for services. So there's it's impossible to describe that with a breath of air. But I will say in summary that people do pay different rates. Now, I don't think the it, the ratio goes the way you mentioned, that individuals pay less than insurance companies. Insurance companies have a lot of muscle. And they typically bargain for lower rates, and they are afraid to disclose those rates uh, for a variety of reasons. The final part of your question, which I realize I'm just addressing it skin deep, is how does that affect prices? It affects it a great deal. It's like anything else where you have a third-party payer. When you're spending your own money to repair your car, you care what it costs. When you bring your car in for an insurance or a warranty repair, you don't care what it costs. So it's it's a it's an effective mechanism for cost control when people have their own skin in the game. When there's a third party involved, there's plenty of evidence that supports what is a pretty common sense proposition, namely that people are not careful about spending other people's money. Does that help you, Jeff? Yeah, so I guess the takeaway would be that if we really wanted to get the, in the cost of medical care down, it would be uh, people spending their own money rather than uh, other people spending our money on uh, on insurance and things like that. I think that's definitely part of the solution. I think that's a that's an incredible force for good in controlling costs. The question is, how do you do that consistent with the fact that a lot of people don't have enough money to pay for it? All okay, right. thanks. That, Jeff, thanks for the call. Let's move on. Uh, I believe Harry's up next. Harry, thank you for holding. You're on with Patrick Barkey. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Patrick. Uh, the the debt and the deficit, uh, from what I see from and uh, here, is that it's actually more uh, uh, a danger to our economy is that not uh, – well, it, it'll, in the long run, it can be more uh, – the debt and deficit can be dangerous, but it's the – uh, games they play in the Congress, these you know, uh, cha- the debt ceiling and all that, to the n- initial uh, uh, economy right now. Because if they, it's the perception of other of, of our economy that is really at uh, is the crux. I mean, if they have people have a poor perception, that is actually more harmful than the debt itself. Is that how how it works? 
I don't know. I, I don't know what the relative merits are. I think the uh, the perception of the deficit and of our commitment to pay it, uh, the debt, shall we say, um, is is an artificial one. In other words, there's no reason why uh, an economy our size there should be any question of our ability to pay the debt. Uh, it will that be the case tomorrow and so forth. So it's it's a completely artificial political exercise that is injecting an un- unnecessary danger. Is that larger than the danger of the debt itself and the size? I don't know. I, it's a different kind of uh, – that one is easier, is, is harder to get away from. But I just want to make one uh, one little soapbox, com- soapbox comment about the debt and the deficit. If you want to know who's to blame for the fact that the federal government has a, such a large national debt, look in the mirror, all right? We have voted for decades for all these people, including people like Conrad Burns and Steve Daines and Greg G. Forty when he's in Congress. I mean, folks have voted for spending in excess of tax revenues. Now, there's a lot of posturing about it, and there's certainly shades of gray in all that, and there's certainly a lot of lot of concern voiced. But when you get these 11th hour spending bills, which have always been the case in Congress now for 20 years going, the institution is clearly broken in the way that it functions in terms of making rational decisions about spending and taxes. Um, If you want to know who the blame is, it's ourselves because we have voted these people back into office. Furthermore, we are receptive. We listen. So when someone has the courage in Congress to suggest that maybe entitlement programs need to be throttled back, because they're unsustainable, they are tarred and feathered. And we join in on that. Uh, We are led by our noses by somebody, I don't know who, but the politics of the situation are so toxic that there's no responsible planning uh, for reining in government deficits. And if anything good came out of this most recent, this this debt ceiling uh, crisis that's right upon us, it would be something that made every member of Congress admit all at once that, yes, we do have a spending problem. Yeah, that, and that, that was actually hit the point I was going to bring up, is that we are to blame it, us, ourselves, our wants. We want a lot of stuff, but then we don't want to pay for it. You know, and uh, to, uh, one uh, thing is the uh, best way to attack it, uh, as far as I can see, is to decrease spending and e- increase income, which means more taxes. I mean, I don't think you can't do just one. You have to do both, don't you? That seems to make sense to me. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not running for office, and if I were, <laughs> my comment would be read back on on a TV screen, and I'd be tarred and feathered just like everyone else, and you would be too. Well, Harry, yeah. Harry, you 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 should run for Congress, dude. Really, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. All right. Thank, thanks for the Bye. call, man. Appreciate it. All right. We have uh, an app question. We have Dave and, and Emmett, and we're going to take a quick break. We'll come right back with more of Talk Back right after this. Okay, we're back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. We still have a couple of phone lines open, but lots of folks are waiting in line. Uh, you want to go with the app question first? Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, Andy said, he said, first, good morning to you guys. But then he said, uh, with this argument over the debt ceiling again, uh, Democrats are threatening cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Says some say that these are standalone agencies and can't be cut. Do you know if that's true or not? Well, and and if we still have a democratic system of government, uh, if it involves spending money, I think uh, Congress and the president have some say on that. So 
I think that one is, is, is certainly not true. I think in terms of, uh, you know, this is, we've all seen this. I mean, I think people can see through this. I mean, find the most painful thing to cut first and, and, and wave it around. So, you know, um, just talking to the debt, just, I, I warned Peter that I had some sermons coming up, bubbling up in my throat. Go for it. But it always reminds me of, uh, you know, in, when, when everyone is covering story A, whatever story A is, I always wonder what's story B <laughs> that's not being uh, covered. And I think uh, one, one completely different story than the debt is the fact that uh, states like California are planning on deficits for their state governments in the coming year. I mean, we're sitting on a $1.7 billion surplus in Montana. You have a state like California says, you know, we're heading into a situation of budget uh, deficit. That should wake people up. That, that, that's, a, that's a huge change. That's ahead. That's in Montana. That's us. The debt is kind of just theater. Uh, it's important theater, but it's theater nonetheless. All right. That's good. Let's uh, continue on. I believe uh, Emmett is up next. Emmett, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Well, you know, um, we're talking about the debt and the deficit. Well, with the debt ceiling that we've now reached, does this mean that next month that there will be no more Social Security checks for seniors or others or food stamps? Because it would be catastrophic for seniors and for our country if all our seniors next month lost their Social Security, everything, until we can get this resolved. That also brings me to the E-word, entitlements. I've always said people need them. People need to eat. It would be catastrophic if we said we're going to seriously, seriously cut Social Security for seniors, food stamps, WIC programs. That will hurt a lot of people because it was after the Great Depression that we decided we really need to help people. We are brother's keeper. We can't just live people on the street. People go on the street, and if we were to cut these programs, I think we could lead us into another Great Depression because we are brother's keeper. That includes the government helping people once in a while, not every single day, but this is just important. So if you could answer those two questions for me, especially about next month and then the months ahead. And, you know, I know in default, if we go to the default, this will happen, but if you could answer those questions, thank All right. you. Thanks, Emmett. Great. Appreciate it. Well, uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on you. I'm going to take, I hope you take this uh, the right way. Um, but I think in, in your comments, you're kind of buying into the entire language that these debates are always framed in. So a cut immediately means someone being pushed off a cliff, uh, to, put, to put it mildly. Whereas what we have right now, let me tell you what we have right now. So what we have right now in Medicare, for example, is we have a situation I'm going to pick on my father-in-law. My father-in-law is pretty well off. He's definitely on Medicare, and uh, you have Medicare paying for his health care, which is good. It helps him out a lot. He likes that a lot. Uh, could he afford it on his own? Well, he could afford a lot of it. And now let's turn that around the other way and say, who is paying for my father-in-law's routine medical care? Let's just frame it that way. It turns out it's every worker in the country. Uh, the Medicare tax is applied to the first dollar of earnings that you make. So every single busboy, every single uh, you name it, CEO in, in the in the country is paying for that. Why? And and the program, by the way, is underfunded. It's not sustainable. So we're not talking about cutting programs per se. We're not take, talking about taking the axe, throwing people off cliffs, and so forth. 
We're talking about doing some rational, sensible things to some programs that are politically untouchable but economically very wasteful and bringing them closer to reality so that we can continue to pay the kinds of things that you mentioned. So I, I, it, it gets me a little bit that we can't think of rationally uh, trimming programs, adjusting programs, bringing them back under control without getting into this rhetoric. We have of, for, for Social Security, there was just uh, a pretty good-sized increase uh, for the, those getting a monthly Social Security benefits. Uh, it was pretty healthy, like several hundred dollars for some uh, every month. So if, if, that, if, if those increases could be halted and maybe we just set it at a certain point and leave it and not let it grow uh, for a year or two or three, uh, how, would that help? Yeah, I don't know if that's the best policy or not, but that's certainly something that could be looked at. The question is not uh, – uh, the evidence is that Social Security is pretty generous with its inflation adjustments. Nobody on Social Security would agree with that, but that's that's the evidence. Uh, but in terms of Social Security, the, the, there's things that can be done there as well. And uh, all I'm suggesting is that we, we all sign on to at least uh, allow for the fact that that has to be part of the solution uh, so that we're not – uh, boxed in by our rhetoric and our toxic politics into continuously kicking the can down the road until it's in such bad shape that we're at a total crisis. And we're getting closer there. You bet. Uh, let's, get, let's get another call in before we have to take a break. Tom is next. Hey, Tom, thanks for holding. Yeah, good morning, Dr. Barkey. Uh, you know, talking about the strength of the U.S. dollar, I know there's um, there's countries around the world that their their, their uh, currency is so worthless that, that all their commerce takes place in uh, in U.S. dollars, you know they don't even use their own money, and I I just wonder how that affects the uh, the dollar around the world, and also uh, you know places like New York City where where people are born and die and live their entire life on uh, on government assistance. So anyway, I I think uh, places like uh, Missoula are, are headed that way someday if they don't change their politics. So anyway, talk a little bit about other countries using our money when they don't even have their own. So thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I don't know if it affects the dollar to to have a country like, I mean, Costa Rica is supposedly on Bitcoin, right? I know, is it Costa Rica or is it uh, El Salvador? Uh, um, the, um, yeah, the, the use of the dollar is, is a, uh, it, it's a good, it's a good, good idea for some of these countries. Of course, that's not our problem. That's their problem. Uh, the fact that they, uh, They've defaulted on their debt. They've inflated their own local currency to the point where no one has any confidence in it. What do you do as a policy to try to address that? Uh, you make a big change like going on the dollar. So I don't think that affects us very much. Uh, it is a, a symbol. They, they could go on the euro, I suppose, if they wanted. It wouldn't make much difference. In terms of people, uh, you know, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of government support all over the place is all I will say. Um, I know that... Uh, uh, sometime around the Clinton era, there was an overhaul of a lot of federal programs. A lot of them were renamed. Uh, a lot of them uh, require uh, work effort. Uh, and uh, so you had things like uh, AFDC, which was the old aid to families and dependent children, became temporary assistance to needy families. TANF, okay? Uh, the thing that's not talked about very much is in, in this pandemic, uh, the Biden administration has has on a temporary basis, but nonetheless for a number of years, has extended uh, the liberalness of those programs, if you will, 
uh, removing uh, work effort requirements and broadening the base for some of these programs like school lunch, uh, trying to make that universal for all kids, regardless of income status, to get free lunch at school. So uh, some of these things are taking us in the other direction. So that's about as far as I can go with that comment. Okay, with that, we're going to take another break. We have Doug and Dave both waiting to visit with you. By the way, our guest in studio is Dr. Patrick Barkey, is the director of the University of Montana's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. We're coming back in one minute. Don't forget our events. Yeah, hey, we're back on Talkback, 721-1290. That's the number. Now, only about uh, seven precious minutes left uh, with Dr. Patrick Barkey. Uh, let's get Doug back on. Doug, good morning. Hi. Well, about 33 years ago, I discovered uh, I could get a job at one of the three major department stores in Southgate Mall. And my job, along with a bunch of other people, we were to look at the price of a product that the store paid uh, and then we were to double that price. So if a pair of blue jeans was $12, uh, we priced them at 24 except for one particular really uh, well-known brand, and uh, we tripled that price to, <laughs> to 36 And I and we were I, – I, I questioned the boss one time about why the smaller the women's swimsuit, the higher the price. And uh, – that was an interesting uh, <laughs> uh, explanation. And then uh, there was a big problem with one item. Uh, it was a, I opened up this really fancy box, and it was a medical device for women. And it was uh, about four inches across. It was circular, and it was clear, and you could squeeze it. And it, it was sort of a, a rubbery, clear plastic. And uh, I said, there's a mistake on this. Uh, it says to charge 250. Uh, and what is this thing? And they said, well, it's uh, when w- women have a breast have to have a breast replacement uh, uh, in their bra. They they take the, they buy this uh, plastic thing to put in their bra. And they said, well, the store paid 25 dollars for it. Uh, why is uh, am I supposed to price it at 250? And the simple explanation was, well, their health insurance pays for it. And they don't question that. Interesting. And so that's <laughs> yeah. All right. Another thing is about you know when you mentioned Yellowstone, um, many years ago, about twenty-five years ago, um, we had a carousel open here in Missoula, and it got lots of publicity nationwide about being one of the first carousels to be built by amateurs in maybe fifty years. And so we actually had. And I was working at the carousel when it opened. We actually had quite a few people come across the country, uh, going from you know one part of one coast to the other, and they would come to Missoula, and they would get off and ask about. We understand there's a carousel here, and they would stop and, and ride the carousel. But they were so excited to to see Missoula, and so it's interesting how you know not only does the film bring people to Missoula to Montana, but a thing, simple thing like a, a carousel of horses uh, brings people to Missoula. So I just want to remind people that the carousel has been out of operation for about three weeks, and a bunch of us artists have been down there repainting those ponies. And so tomorrow we are opening the carousel again. All the ponies have been repainted, cool. so all the scratches, and we put two coats of clear on them, keep them from getting scratched for a while. And uh, so tomorrow, you can go and ride 
newly painted carousel horses in Missoula, Montana. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank, thanks for the call. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we have uh, exactly, we don't have time for another phone call, but we do have time. Uh, we only have like two and a half, three minutes left. So, Patrick, if you wouldn't mind going over the schedule of, of your seminar that's coming up, where you're going, what you're doing, uh, for those who weren't with us when we first started talking this morning. Sure. Um, for the 48th year, our research center is putting on half-day programs across the state. You can go to economicoutlookseminar.com for details. It includes lunch. It's a full lineup of speakers on the outlook for specific industries, as well as the outlook for some of the things we've been talking about in this program this morning. It is an attempt by our center to deliver information about Montana and Montana specifically. Um, we, we look at the industries that are critical for Montana, and it is a gathering of decision makers and uh, business folks who are involved in the economies in every region. So the conversations we have are interesting we have a couple new wrinkles this time. I was joking with Peter. We have an app now for our uh, seminar. So when you register, it's quite useful. You can you can ask questions and see who's attending and so forth. So I, I would welcome you to go there. There is a charge for it. There's group discounts or student discounts. But if you go to economicoutlookseminar.com, you'll find out where uh, and when. Uh, the first one starts in Great Falls in January 24th. Uh, Helena on the 25th, um, Missoula on the 27th, and then from then on, there's there's six more. I won't read them all off, but you can get the, the dates and times at the site. So it's it's a unique opportunity uh, to hear is, the story it, about the economy. Is there a specific guest speaker this year? or? Yeah, we have a theme this year, which is the, uh, the in-migration wave that has hit the state, where not only are we getting more people, but we're typically, we're getting wealthier people, we're getting older people. We're getting more affluent people that are discovering Montana and moving here. Part of that is because of remote work. Part of that is because of what's going on in cities. Uh, it's it's definitely a COVID kind of thing uh, that has legs and has the potential to really change our economy, particularly in the communities where most people are going. I think uh, the question that's going to be posed by our keynote speaker is, what is Montana going to do about it? In other words, if we continue to underbuild, uh, in our housing markets, we're going to see things get a lot more expensive here in Montana. Uh, if we accommodate the growth by doing more building than we, than we have been historically, we'll have more people. Uh, we'll have more people regardless. The question is, will our communities transform before our eyes and be places where we can continue to afford to live, or will things change that drastically to change that? Patrick, it's always a pleasure having you. Thank you. You're a fountain of information, and we appreciate you. Thank you, Peter. A cup of coffee will get you a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff. Well, you take the pound of coffee, too, with you. So there you, so go. There you go, yeah. Oh, so what's coming up on Monday's fabulous show there, Mr. Nick? Uh, right now we're going to have open phones. So yeah, All right. we'll see how that goes. I had one lady call me about 7 o'clock this morning who wanted to just go on and on about her opinions, and I said, you know, we're going to have open phones on Monday. She goes, oh, really? All right, well, so. <laughs> we'll stick with it then. <laughs> you guys get out there and make it a wonderful weekend, and uh, we will see you bright and early on Sunday, uh, on Monday, how about Monday morning, and uh, go Grizz on Saturday against the Cats. Have a good one, everybody.